Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our webinar. I hope you've had the opportunity to um, read through this uh, through this slide. It's kind of a um, housekeeping slide, if you will. We've switched over to Zoom webinars from our previous um, provider, and so things are a little bit different. Instead of using the chat box, which we used to use, we are now using the question and answer box. And you can post your questions there anonymously if you choose to. The chat box will not be available for use. So we're looking for those questions um, from the audience to be posted into the chat box, or excuse me, into the question and answer box. And I will answer those as, as they come through. And so um, also an evaluation survey is going to be provided at the end of the webinar. Question number six on this survey will provide a link which allows you to download your certificate of attendance. If you have questions about the certificate, please email insource at insource.org. Jill and I cannot answer those questions. We don't, don't handle the certificates. But if you contact insource at insource.org, they can answer your questions for you. If you are attending by telephone only, and some folks, um, we have no way of knowing who you are, though we know you're out there. <laughs> and so if you wish to receive a certificate of attendance, um, you need to be sure that by the end of business day today, that you contact insource at insource.org and let them know that you, um, that you joined us today, or you can call 800-332-4433 and also identify yourself to staff as having attended. And so this is if you've registered, if you're listening by phone and you want that certificate, please contact by the end of business day today, our, our main office, so that you can get that certificate. We also have archived webinars uh, on our website, and I've posted a link here, but if you go to insource.org and look under trainings and scroll um, on the, the, the bar on the far right-hand side, you'll see down at the bottom webinars and archived webinars, and you can view any, um, um, any of our previously recorded webinars. Um, I have some questions. Uh, can you hear me? No, I can't. I can't hear you all are muted. You should be able to hear me, but you are muted. And so that's why your questions are going to be coming through the chat box, or excuse me, the question and answer box. I'm never going to get away from, from the, old, the old way of doing so. So again, use that uh, question and answer box to get your questions answered. And I do see some in here. No, I cannot hear you because you are muted. And so, um, yeah, hopefully you can hear me. If you can't, you may want to get out and try joining again and be, be sure to click on use your computer um, to, to participate or you can call in with a toll-free number um, that is provided also. Okay, I'm looking to see who all's here. We have we have a few people. Uh, my co-host should be joining shortly. Um, I want to do a quick poll of the folks that are here. Um, just doing some demographics. You can actively click on the what best describes your 
um, your role. Okay, or hopefully you're all seeing that. How do you describe your role? And click on whichever, um, whichever category best describes you. Okay, we've got a case, some case managers, we've got parents, we've got some school staff. Great, great. We have, an, have some advocates online, we've got some others. <laughs> I'm always afraid to kind of ask what others are, but sometimes that's, I'm so many of these, I'm not sure which one to, to choose. So great, okay. So we've got about 81% of folks that are registered that are, that are online that have, um, that have voted. So we've got, uh, we've got advocates, we've got case managers, we've got parents, we've got school staff, and, and then we, we have, have others that are here. Okay, oh, got another, got another one. Okay, a couple, we'll give it a few more seconds. Got another chance to vote if you can. Okay, so 90% of you have voted. So we've got a really, really nice um, cross view of, of folks who are attending today. And that's, that's wonderful. Okay, okay, great. Okay, so just to, again, just for those of you that may have just joined, post questions in your question and answer box. You're all muted. Hopefully you can hear me. If you're attending only by phone, in other words, you're not looking at a computer program, you didn't go through uh, the link to join that way. We know you're here. We don't know who you are. And if you want that certificate, you'll need to contact InSource at InSource.org or call 800-332-4433 um, to um, let us know that you uh, did in fact join us today. Okay, very good. All right, then let's go ahead and get started in our, in our presentation. We're going to be talking today about the Individualized Education Program. You know, we love our acronyms, but we, we call this the IEP. You may not even have known what, the, what IEP stood for. This is what it stands for in IDEA and in Article 7, Indiana's uh, Special Education Rules. It stands for individualized, which means individual to the particular child, and then it describes that individual child's educational program. Have to do legal disclaimers, of course. It's really important to understand this is for educational purposes only. And also to kind of clarify that we, InSource is not a legal services agency and, and we are not attorneys. So we do not represent parents, we do not represent students, but we do help educate parents um, on the special education process help them to navigate through that process and help parents to better understand their rights and their responsibilities under Article 7. A little bit about InSource. I just said what we weren't. Now I'm going to tell you what we are. InSource is what's called a Parent Training and Information Center. It was established back in 1975 up in South Bend. South Bend is our main office. We have a lot of local staff throughout the state. Every county has someone that, that works with families in your area, wherever you might be. And we were one of the first five parent centers in the United States to get this federal grant to be a parent training and information center. And our funding is currently through the Indiana Department of Education and the United States Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services Administration. 
And that's why we collect a lot of information from you because these grants require that we do that. So there are lots of ways that we assist our families. We, as, we, as I said earlier, we do have uh, regional offices throughout the state. I happen to be located in Northwest Indiana. So I serve part of Lake County plus Newton, Jasper and Pulaski County and my co-host Jill Summerlot uh, when she takes over, she'll, she can tell you a little bit more about the area where she serves. Um, most interestingly enough, most of our staff, if not all, have a child or a family member with disabilities. So for many of, of us, this information was helpful for us in advocating for our own children, but we've been to the table many, many times for conferences for our own as well as for you know, for helping other families. And it kind of makes us uniquely qualified to assist parents um, in, in navigating this process um, of special education. We spend a lot of time on the phone answering questions through emails. I send a lot of information via email. We do trainings such as what we're doing now, a webinar, but we do in-person trainings as well. And we do sometimes provide, provide support at case conference meetings at schools. I don't know how many of you have been to our website, insource.org, but if you have not been there before, I really hope that you'll take the time to go and look. We've got lots of fabulous resources that are related to disabilities, re related to many, many topics regarding special education. We also have calendars where you can see what trainings are going on at the, in the state at any given time, maybe even in your area. Uh, you can also view online recorded trainings that we've done uh, that you can watch in, in the convenience of your own home, as well as archived webinars that we've done in the past. And you, there's also usually a link to register for a training event if you see one that you would like to attend. So it makes it, makes it a little bit easier to, to get registered uh, to attend a training of some sort. Okay, so let's get into the nitty gritty of our presentation today. I like to kind of start at the beginning talking about, this is an overview of what we're going to be talking about. So I'm going to start by talking about the six principles of IDEA. We're going to be looking at the factors um, to be considered when developing an IEP. We're going to do a brief overview of the required components within an IEP and there are required components. We're going to look at least restrictive environment and, and what that means and this is very very important too as, as you will see shortly. We're going to talk a little bit about accommodations and modifications and about resolving disagreements. My uh, co-trainer Jill is going to take over when we get to the section on um, the teacher of record and talk a little bit about what that person does and, and their responsibilities. And so I, we've got a lot of really, really good information that we're going to be looking at today. Okay, so I mentioned those six principles of IDEA. IDEA is the federal law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that mandates um, that every state have a parent training and information center. And it also sets the standard for special education for the entire country. 
states may do more than IDEA requires, but they may not do less. Indiana was one of those states that chose to do a little more, hence we have something called Article 7. And Article 7 has to meet the, the requirements of IDEA, but has chosen to do a little bit more in, in some, some areas. But certainly contained within IDEA, as well as Article 7, are these six principles. And so the first principle is that of a free, appropriate public education, or FAPE. We use a lot of acronyms, but this to me is the linchpin for the entire special education process. Free means at no cost to parents. Appropriate means individualized to make, meet the unique needs of the, a particular student, so the, the, the services are appropriate to that particular child. And then a public education, so FAPE. Um, services have to be appropriate in order to meet, that, meet the criteria for a free, appropriate public education. Public education means at a public school, not a private school. The individualized education program is that, um, the, that the educational document that the case conference committee comes together to write to identify the needed supports and services to help students to benefit and make progress in their education. It's very, very important. IEPs are based off of appropriate evaluations. Evaluations are the key to unlocking special education services. So uh, evaluations have to be appropriate in as much as they, it needs to be in the child's native language or mode of communication. You know, we're counting on that, the appropriateness of that evaluation to provide guidance to number one, determining if a child qualifies for special education services and we also require or rely on that evaluation to help to write that IEP. So it's very, very important. Least restrictive environment, or again, LRE, <laughs> uh, and we will talk about this um, in the training as well, means that to the maximum extent appropriate, students with disabilities will be educated with their typical peers. And for a lot of people, you may think, well, what's the big deal? My kid goes to a public school. Well, the big deal is 50 years ago, your child may not have been in a public school. Um, children with disabilities prior to 1973 often weren't educated and they usually were not in the same school that their, their siblings would go to. So this really, really is a big deal. We've come really, really far. Actually, it's better than 50 years, I believe, at this point. And so least restrictive environment is just critically important. You hear words like inclusion. We're talking about getting children with disabilities into the same classrooms with their peers that do not have disabilities because numerous studies have shown that these children tend to have better outcomes in adult life when they've been educated to the maximum extent appropriate with their typical peers. Very, very important. Procedural safeguards are, pro it's the process that safeguards the rights of parents and students. Any, pretty much any time you go to a case conference meeting, the school will off offer you this booklet of procedural safeguards. Please take it and read it. Please take it and read it. You really need to know what's contained within these safeguards. 
And then the last principle is that of parents and students have the right to fully participate in this process. And that means parents have a seat at the table in helping to develop the IEP. Students, especially those in junior high or high school, when we're writing transition IEPs, need to have a place at the table and have input as well as we're developing transition goals. Those are just really, really critically important rights. And, and I, I, I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate the importance of that right to fully participate. So there are three core concepts um, re around the, the IEP. And one is students, involved, students need to be involved in the general curriculum. In other words, as general education classrooms to the maximum extent possible or appropriate, and appropriate is important too. Um, and the involvement of parents and students in making educational decisions because they do have a seat at the table, as I mentioned earlier, and that post-school preparations lead to better outcomes once kids stop attending school. In other words, they're living in the adult world. So, you know, making good transition IEPs to help kids or young people to transition into adult life so that they can lead as full and productive and independent a life as, as, as is possible for them. So when developing an IEP, we, we look at these general factors. We certainly consider the strengths of the student. All students have strengths. I think sometimes we tend to focus on their weaknesses and, and certainly that needs attention, but all of our students have, have strengths beyond they're friendly, they're happy. And sometimes we need to focus a little bit more on how perhaps we can use those strengths to improve uh, or to, you know, to improve outcomes for the student to help them to benefit. Uh, there's a section on parent concerns and I spent a great deal of time talking with my parents about making sure that you write out what those concerns are. In fact, we have a pretty fabulous document on worksheet of parent concerns that parents can share with the school ahead of time if they wish, so that everybody's on the same page when you go to your meeting to revise the IEP. What are your concerns? What do you want the school to know? And then we need to work through that meeting to try to solve those concerns or come to some sort of con conclusion. Evaluation findings, especially, you know, anytime there's a new evaluation, that information needs to be included in there because that helps to drive the development of that IEP. And then we need to look at areas of student need, academic, uh, developmental, communication, and functional. So those needs, those areas, academic needs would be how does a student perform in relation to Indiana's academic standards. Each grade level has, has academic standards that students in that grade are expected to master or at least do a good job of learning. Um, even children with disabilities should be, um, need to be looking, or need to be kind of compared to these standards and working towards these standards. When we talk about developmental needs, we're talking about stages of growth from in infancy through childhood. We do know some children are developmentally delayed. They are not um, doing things independently the same way maybe their peers are doing. 
Um, you know, we may, we still have some 10, you know, some 10 year olds that perhaps can't tie shoes or perhaps are not fully toilet trained. You know, there are issues and that needs to, you know, be made clear in the IEP itself as well. We have to look at, is there a need in communication? And in communication, we talk about the ability for um, a, a child to make his wants and needs understood uh, to, to schools, to parents, through a variety or a combination of methods. Are they nonverbal? Are they somewhat verbal? Do they need assistive technology to, to communicate? Uh, do they need braille textbooks? So is there a need, uh, is there a communication need that needs to be addressed through the IEP? And then we also talk about functional needs. And I want to start by defining what functional performance is. It's often used within the, the context of, of, of daily living, those routine activities that, um, that we expect to do and expect our kids to do. But they are varied depending on the, on the individual needs of, of the child. As I mentioned earlier, you may have some 10-year-olds that can't tie shoes, are not fully toilet trained. You know, we do know some students have some you know pretty significant functional needs and you know they may need some independent living goals um, but some examples of functional performance could be you know fine motor and gross motor ability again how do they compare to to kid typical kids their own age are they right on target or are they delayed mobility behavior is a big one behavior uh, is considered to be a functional performance um, issue. If you have a child that's constantly getting in trouble at school, constantly being sent to the principal, um, getting detentions for behavior, maybe getting in school suspensions or out of school suspensions, that should be a red flag that this needs to be looked at in light of the IEP. Perhaps a functional behavioral assessment needs to be done, perhaps a, um, a behavioral intervention plan then needs to be written based on that FBA. Get a lot of kids with who are doing okay academically, but they're not doing okay functionally because they're missing a great deal of school because of behavioral challenges. And so some of the other examples of functional performance, do they, do they get along with their peers? Do they communicate well? Do they have friends? Um, do they have good executive functioning skills? Um, a lot of our ADHD kids and children with autism struggle with this lack of organization, um, difficulty with multi-step tasks. All of those things can affect uh, your ability to learn well at school. They, they really can. And so do we need to write a, uh, an executive functioning goal into that IEP? So you can see the rest of these um, examples of functional performance and, and basically folks, what I tell parents is when you're talking about present levels of performance in the IEP uh, and you're hearing over and over various teachers commenting, you know, he, he, never, he never brings his books to class, he never turns his homework in, his homework is always half completed. If you're hearing this a lot, that's something that bears looking at. Is this an example of a functional performance deficit that perhaps needs to be looked at and perhaps even having a goal written into it? Do they need additional support in teaching them how to be more organized? For those of us that had 
children with ADHD, we parents know what we have to do, what we had to do to teach our children to be organized at home. And it's really not any different at school. Uh, some kids do not have, do not come by that knowledge on their own. It, it actually takes teaching to make it happen. So we, we need to be attend, uh, attending to that. So there can be special factors within the IEP. Um, behavioral needs, are there behavioral needs or interventions um, and supports that need to happen? You know, as I mentioned earlier, behavior can be um, a functional performance deficit, especially if they're getting in trouble regularly and it's often around the very same, in the same circumstances, the same things maybe seem to trigger it. Uh, really, really needs to be looked at. So th those are special factors that need perhaps some special um, consideration. And so um, we need to, again, consider these special factors for each student and then document in the IEP how to adjust instruction accordingly. Does staff need specialized training? If you have a bus driver that is driving children that have autism or some serious behavioral concerns, do they need specialized or some special training on how to handle that? Or if they have a child that has a seizure disorder, does staff need specialized training to know how to, to handle that? And parents, that's something that you can discuss at the, at the meeting as well. Some of our schools have been really fabulous about inviting parents to come and talk to staff that work with their student uh, to kind of explain you know, what the seizures look like or what they might do in, a certain, in certain circumstances, especially for some, some medical problems that are perhaps a little bit out of the ordinary. You know, school staff hopefully will be very appreciative of that additional background information that you might be able to provide to help them to help your child. So you are to consider each of these items um, the case conference committee has the responsibility to plan services that are based on the student's unique needs, regardless of the student's identified disability. So if there's a unique need, it needs to be looked at. Um, it's good for the parent to, to study, for you to study this list um, based on the knowledge of your student. And then it's really important to document how to prepare train staff and train staff about the student's individual needs and characteristics. Okay. Um, and so, and if you have a child that's transitioning out of first steps, the individualized family service plan needs to be looked at. You know, first steps is prior to the age of three. So we certainly want to be looking at the individualized family service plan in the development of an IEP when the school takes over. Hey, I'm checking out these questions so far. Okay, well, I, the, the poll disappeared. So um, yeah, we didn't have a place for foster parents. So <laughs> um, uh, so that, I guess maybe that's something that we can, we can add. And I suppose that falls under that alien category of, you know, I'm not sure who I am, <laughs> but okay. Deal. Okay, so before I get too much further into this, I hope that you had the opportunity to look at the entire uh, handout 
that came this morning with your instruction package for joining. A lot of times we just look at that first page that provides that link to click so that you can join the webinar. There's also beyond that pages and pages of handouts. There is the PowerPoint handout, the handout that matches this PowerPoint and you can print that off. But also beyond that is a document that was developed by the, in the Indiana um, IEP Resource Center on um, Parents' Guide to the IEP. It's a pretty fabulous document. If you open it, it's basically all of, all of the components of an IEP with a, 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 a relatively short, some shorter than others, explanation of what needs to go into that slot for that particular, um, for that particular area. And so it's very helpful. I would strongly encourage you to print that off, review it before your next case conference meeting, take it with you. It'll help you to be, to understand a little bit better about what information needs to go into each of these topics within the IEP itself. So I do hope that you'll be able to um, download that and print it off. So aside from right at the beginning, talking about the, the school's going to check your information. Is this current? Is your address current? Is your phone number current? Hopefully that's all, all good. But we're going to generally start out with talking about students' present levels of performance. And it's really important that parents, that you understand what this information means. Schools are really, really good about capturing data you know, through, through assessments and, and testing and, you know, looking at records and that's wonderful, but that doesn't always translate well into something, in, into information that parents can readily digest unless they're in the special education field. You'll often see a lot of numbers and often parents do not know what those mean. Sometimes I don't know what they mean either. <laughs> and it's okay to ask questions. You want to know if my child's in eighth grade, and he took, he's, you know, I'm looking at star reading scores, which are assessments that some schools use periodically throughout the school year. But it says that his instructional reading level is that of a third grader. Um, that would be concerning. But if you don't understand what that language means, you may not understand what that means for your child. And so if your child is five years behind in reading, hopefully not. Um, Clearly, you're going to be looking very closely at those goals that we're writing for that child because there are some significant needs. So present levels of performance should be guiding the, the writing of goals because those present levels of performance will likely identify the areas of weakness. And we need to talk about how are we going to um, help th that weakness? How are we going to improve uh, the, that performance for that child. So present levels, very, very important. There'll be a statement about how the disability um, affects progress um, in school. It'll also contain measurable goals and objectives. All IEPs should have a goal. Your child doesn't have a goal. I'd be questioning why he's in special ed um, because special education is about specially designed instruction to meet the needs of students with a disability. So clearly something different needs to be happening in some areas because we've identified 
some significant weaknesses. That's why he has an IEP. So we should be writing goals to address those weaknesses with a view to closing that performance gap between your child and his typical peers. If he's behind in reading, how are we going to close that gap? Not just stay even, you know, they're three years apart for the next five years. Well, hopefully we're closed, making, getting that reading gap closed a little, so maybe they're only two years behind their peers and eventually maybe one year behind. Um, every child is different. And so, you know, you can't make any blanket statements. It will always work this way, but that's what we need to be working for with our children. How is progress going to be measured? You know, there can be a variety of, of ways of measuring. It can be, you know, teacher assessments, teacher observations. It can be district, you know, assessments such as iLearn and what have you. But we should be getting a, a there should be a way to measure, is my child meeting, making progress towards those goals. And that information is provided to parents. Uh, generally, they provide it somewhere around the same time that your child gets their report card. I, I'm always concerned because I have a lot of parents that don't know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to be talking to your teacher of record. You may not have recognized it for what it is. You need to recognize it and you need to review it. And if you have questions, you need to talk to your teacher of record to help them to help or to help for them to help you to understand what does this mean for this year long goal that we've written for my child? Is he in fact closing that gap? Is he getting close to meeting that goal that we've written for a year out? The last thing you ever want to do is to go to your a meeting a year later and find out that your child made little to no um, progress on achieving that goal. Better to find out early than late. You can always go back and rewrite the goal or, you know, look at additional supports or services or interventions. But if you've identified that goal as being important, then we need to identify um, how we need to assist this child in achieving it. There'll be a section on special education and related services. What are those services? How often? How long? Um, and that's very clearly, should be very clearly documented in the IEP. Is your child going to participate in those statewide assessments? If your child's on a diploma track, they'll be taking iLearn. If they're not on a diploma track, they'll be taking um, a, a different version of that and very limited application for our most, our, our children with the most severe intellectual um, disabilities, students that are not on the diploma track, but you need to, that question has to be answered in the IEP. And then also within that should be the dates that these services and these uh, modifications or accommodations are going to begin. There should be a begin date and an end date. IEPs are typically are, are written for a year. And so that's why we have something called an annual case review or ACR. Again, those acronyms, but parents, it's important to note that if there are problems in the school year, if something's you know, really going wrong, or you just have concerns, you or the school can certainly convene a case conference. 
to discuss it and perhaps even make some revisions into the IEP if that's appropriate. So please don't feel like you have to wait for an entire year, especially if you realize that th those goal, some of those goals your child really is not making good progress on. That could be a good reason to, to meet early, to talk about it and to look at what can we do differently to support my child in achieving the goals that we've written. Also within the IEP, we have to consider something called extended school year. Extended school year is not summer school, though it often occurs during the summer, but there's somewhat of a limited application uh, for this. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, my child's gonna get tutoring over the summer. That, that's not what it's all about. We're, you know, there's a, a wonderful technical assistance document that uh, DOE wrote several years ago that can provide questions and kind of guide that discussion in your case conference meeting, whether or not a child really does, really would benefit or really does need extended school year services. I know we tend to blow past this uh, fairly quickly, but um, it is worthy of discussion. And if you're interested in that technical assistance document, it is on our website at insource.org technical assistance document, extended school year. <clears throat> and um, it can, like I said, provide some guidance on answering the questions, you know, does this really seem like this is a situation that might require extended school year services? Least restrictive environment, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Again, to the, you know, where is, where is this child going to be receiving services? Is the majority of his day going to be in a general education class? And with some resource, some, you know, some classes outside of that, is this child going to be totally in a resource room or totally in a self-contained classroom? Is this child on um, in residential? Is this child on homebound? You know, we have to talk about what's a what's the most appropriate placement for the child, and that is documented within the IEP. There should be a statement that the that rights of the rights transfer to the student at the age of 18, unless guardianship, there's a guardian appointed, and um, there's written notes aren't actually a part of the IEP. Written notes are Oh, excuse me. Yes, they are. I'm thinking written opinion. Written notes. Yeah, very, very important. Written notes are basically kind of summarizing the discussion that the case conference committee had. Uh, I always encourage parents to uh, have staff kind of read those notes back as, as you go along, because sometimes, you know, face it, when you're trying to write quickly, you know, I hear things a certain way, you might hear it a different way. And when it gets written down, it may not be the way you know the parent heard it or somebody else heard it. It's a great opportunity to say, can you read those back and make those corrections right then and there if need be. And I really, really strongly urge you to, to do that. So much easier to correct information at the meeting with everybody that heard it all at the same time in the meeting, much easier. So please do that review periodically what we've agreed to, what we've talked about, and make sure that we're all on the same page with what, with what is being written. Um, okay, 
So we have something called the Indiana IEP or IIEP, <laughs> and um, it's a web-based electronic document that was developed by the Department of Education. Uh, prior to the development of this, schools had to buy their own um, IEP programs at great expense, as I understand. And what's really great about the IEP, I, Indiana IEP, is that it makes, it ensures that every component of the IEP is in fact um, contained within that student's IEP. Every component gets addressed and, you know, answered or information is inputted so, so that nothing gets left out. I believe it's probably being used by all schools, but there may be a few holdouts that are not. Uh, all the schools that I work with use the, the IEP, the Indiana IEP, and it is electronic. And so it's, you know, it can be very, a very, very helpful um, for schools as well. Okay, so I'm getting ready to turn this over to Jill. And um, I'm looking for questions. There, there is a question in there posted, Kathy. Okay. It says if they are making passing grades, but they are oppositionally defiant, should I request an IEP? Well, I'm assuming that the child does not have an IEP at this point. So your, what you would want to consider doing is making a request to the school for a special education evaluation. And the school will have, once they receive your request, please do that in writing just because, just because um, the school, once they receive that request, they have 10 school days to review it and to review your child's records and to decide, yeah, you know, maybe he does have, maybe he, he potentially is a child with a disability. Or they may look at it and say, no, we're not seeing it. So I encourage parents provide detail you know, if he's got this diagnosis, uh, you know, any kind of medical or psychiatric diagnoses could be helpful, you know, to share if being suspended, if he's getting multiple office referrals, that's concerning because every time a child is out of class, they're missing out on education. And so using that information and your concern, put that in, in, in an email and email it to the building principal and to your child's teacher. And then within 10 school days, you should receive a written response from the school. Either yes, we'll evaluate and we need you to come in and sign consent, or at this time, you know, we're refusing to evaluate because, and then they have to tell you why. You do have the right to disagree with the school if they refuse. Um, and that's something that, you know, we can talk about another time if you want to contact me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, you certainly, anytime a parent um, has a concern about whether a child has a disability, they do have the right to, um, uh, to post or, or to, to ask the school to evaluate. Okay, um, can you post the links? I'm not sure what links you're referring to. If you're talking about the, um, the handouts, you should have gotten that this morning in your email. All of those handouts were in that email, the instruction page, and then beyond that, all of these handouts are contained. If that's what you're referring to, um, if you're referring to uh, our website, it's insource.org. And if you click in the um, 
um, search box, type in extended school year, and then hopefully that, that should take you to the extended school year document. If it does not, then um, contact me at cboswell at insource.org. I don't have any way to type information into the question and answer box. So I can't, I can't share any of those links with you, but um, please go to our website and, and search under extended school year, if that's what you were referring to. Okay. And um, okay, at what point will it be determined what track the student is on? Um, right, diploma track. It used to be, you know, especially for children with more severe intellectual impairments, a lot of times kids would be taken off the diploma track in early elementary school. What I'm seeing is we're getting away from that because there's actually a lot more emphasis on academics now, even for students with more severe intellectual impairments. And so the decision really probably needs to be made in junior high before they go into high school because in high school, they're either going to be, either if they're on diploma track, they will be working on credits toward graduation. If the decision is made for a certificate of completion, they will be working on applied units. Even though they may do some classes that will earn a credit, applied credits are, or excuse me, applied units are what you accumulate for that certificate of um, completion. So, and, but I have heard of, you know, sometimes kids were still on diploma track and in 10th grade, the decision was made, not gonna happen we need to switch. But that's a good case conference committee decision. There is no hard and fast time, you know, in Article 7 that says, you know, you, you know, by sixth grade, you need to know this. Every, every situation is different. But just remember, when we're talking about going into high school, the course requirements are going to be much more difficult. And, you know, expectations will be different. And so really probably need to have a pretty good handle on which way you're going by the time they get into high school. But again, case conference decision, okay? Okay. All right, Jill? All righty. I do apologize. I was actually a few minutes late. Um, been a rather interesting and busy morning for me. Anyway, I am Jill Summerlot, I'm a regional program specialist, and I am in Putnam County, and I cover Putnam and Hendricks and Boone County. So I'm um, a little bit uh, south of Kathy and to the west. Um, anyway, so let's just go ahead and jump on in. We're going to talk about the teacher of record or the acronym, because we all know we love our acronyms. It's the TOR, and the teacher of record. Um, this person is the one that is going to oversee the information in the IEP. They're one that they're going to be the one that disseminates the information in the IEP. Um, they have, you know, they, they have some pretty, um, pretty good responsibilities, some very important responsibilities. And um, they actually are going to be the person that's going to be licensed in the area of your child's disability or trained in that area. Um, with, uh, so they, they actually, uh, they, they very specifically have a area that they're going to be, you know, targeting in on. 
If you have a teacher that's an emotional disability, she has received that license in emotional disability. Um, this person is making, going to make sure that everything that is in the IEP is to be implemented and they're going to make sure that all the staff that come into contact with your child are fully informed of what each of their um, specific responsibilities are. Um, or in, if you have a child that has um, specific um, um, modifications or accommodations, then they will make sure that those that all the staff know what that is. And um, they're going to just be the one that's in charge of it. They're going to be making sure that it's carried out as written because that's part of what their job duty is. Um, they will probably be sending a what they call um, out of the Indiana IEP, they can print out a what they call an IEP at a glance. And this is just going to be a brief summary of what the IEP is, including any behavior plans, um, any sort of information that um, uh, would be deemed necessary for staff to know. Um, it's a really good idea for parents to have a pretty good relationship with that teacher of record. That teacher of record is going to be a contact person. Um, if you have a question on, you know, if you have a T, if you have like a high schooler, you know that they have a bunch of people that, you know, a bunch of teachers that they go to. But if you have a specific question on language arts, you will want, probably want to just email or call that a language arts teacher or math teacher. If you have a, a question about the IEP or the special education process, any of those questions that would, would be um, special related, you would want to contact that teacher of record. That teacher of record may also be the person that you, you that you um, are going to go through for um, the, uh, just get set up a case conference. It just depends upon what that role for that teacher of record, if that's the person that does the scheduling. Um, they're going to be in charge of making sure that at least one time a year you come back in for that annual case review. Um, I do see we have a question that's popped up, and this is our TOR for my son's junior year is not yet licensed in special education. Is this legal? The TR, TOR is work. <coughs> Excuse me, working on a certification. In some instances, I do know that there was an, there are emergency licenses. Um, uh, excuse me. So it is a question that you can ask. The, um, it's a, that would be a personnel question. And you can even ask your special education director on the certification that they are working on and finding out more of that information. Um, you could do it that way. But I do know that there's been several teachers that have had to get an emergency license because one, there may have been a teacher shortage. Two, it may have been a case of that the teacher has decided to switch over and to do that so that they need they needed to get that emergency. Um, the case conference committee, the TOR even for gen ed classes. Um, the TOR, they have to, the teacher of record is the one that governs all of that paperwork for special education. So if you have a child that's in gen ed classes, that teacher of record would be reaching out to those gen ed classes and making sure that they do have that information as well. 
I'm not sure if that's the question you're asking me. Um, but that person is, um, they're, they're just, their area is that they have a special license that covers, they may be a teacher that has a degree and can teach math, or they may be a teacher that can teach language arts, but if they have that, that additional license or certi certification on their license to be a teacher of record in the, one of those 13 areas, then absolutely they could be even teaching gen ed classes. I hope that makes sense. Um, the TOR can be different from the teacher of service. The teacher of record is, it does not necessarily have to be the one that is also teaching the classroom. Um, but if that teacher of record that can be part of their role is to be a teacher of service as well, teaching in a classroom. Uh, may not be specifically for your child to be that child's teacher of service, but it could be. It just depends upon the situation that the school is, is in. Um, so the teacher and the teacher record, um, they may, may provide direct services or they may not provide direct services. Again, it's some of those services that what would be um, their role in that? Um, I know that I had a, my son who graduated four years ago had a very hands-off teacher of record. Um, and um, yeah, she, she was multiply disabled teacher of record. And so she wasn't even at the high school whenever he was there, he, she was at the elementary. So if we had questions or anything, it was not, Generally, it wasn't, she wasn't the person I went through. I usually went through the principal, you know, if I needed to set up a, a case conference or something, then he would track her down and tell her. Um, I just wanna make sure that you understand that the IEP at a glance um, will contain some things as they're applicable. Um, it, will it will do, it will have their primary disability. So will it be other health impairment? Will it be a specific learning disability? Is it a, emotional disability, what area that would be for that child. Um, it would have under the services and other provisions, it could have the transition services, any special education services, any of those related services. Um, if there was an emergency plan or a health plan, that would be contained in there. That special considerations area, that would be where you would find those behaviors of concern. Um, the behaviors that would impede his or her learning. Um, this would also be where you would find that functional behavioral assessment information. And um, any of, they would also have on there anything if they were gonna be participating in those um, uh, statewide assessments and any of those accommodations, the goals, um, absolutely any accommodation and the description of those accommodations. Um, the educational records, they'd be described into the IEP um, to or to have access. The records would include that emergency evacuation plan or that uh, health plan if they were needing a health plan. So let's talk a little bit about accommodations. Accommodations and modifications are part of the IEP. Um, the, it's important for everybody to understand the difference of, between the two. Um, a case conference committee decides and they are the one that will document those individual accommodations um, like extra time, frequent breaks, 
um, smaller groups, extra set of home, uh, extra books at home. Um, but the case conference committee is the one that's going to be going through those accommodations and making those decisions. The teacher record and the parent, were, they're going to be the ones that are going to make sure that um, the accommodations are followed through, but they were going, they're also going to make sure that on that district and statewide assessments, that they're implemented according to that student's IEP. You cannot have a accommodation on an IEP that's not done generally through the day, as well as having it on state assessments. So you can't have just on the state assessments that take it small group and he not, the child not be using that during the daily routine of their um, school day. Um, they have to be able to use it in both areas. That's just, that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, and, a, and a lot, of, and a way, of one way to explain this, and not everybody needs a scribe. It's not that I'm recommending scribes. It's just an example, but a scribe. If you have a child that needs a scribe, to take tests and they're not using a scribe at the daily every day and, and practicing with that scribe, when they get to the, those test days, they're not gonna know how to use that scribe. So you need to make sure that whatever is in there for those accommodations, that they are being implemented and they're being implemented any issues or problems, but it has to be across the board during test days, during, you know, even regular test days at school, um, you know, spelling tests, anything like that, if that's what is, is part of those accommodations for your child. And not everybody's accommodations may look the same. Um, it just, again, it's a case conference committee decision. Those conversations have to be had um, because you don't want um, something put in there that the child's not gonna use or they're not gonna have that buy-in on using. Um, it's just, it's a waste of time. Um, so you just, you just got to make sure that you're very careful with what, what you're picking and choosing. This, it's to level that playing field so that they have the, the, you know, the playing fields leveled for them so they have the same advantages as everybody else. Modifications, they reduce the amount of information that the, that the child's going to have to learn. Um, the number of spelling words, lower reading level, um, less complex math calculations. Um, but if the, everybody needs to be aware that if the student's curriculum is modified so that it's no longer focused on those grade level standards, the student's course of study is changed to one that leads to certification um, of completion. And that's not, that's not a high school diploma. So you need to be very cautious and very clear on whether it's an accommodation or a modification. Because once you start changing that, um, curriculum and changing the way things are done, they're taken off, it takes them off of that diploma track. And again, when you have these conversations inside the case conference, that's the best time to make sure that your child is um, receiving what they need to receive to help them level that playing field. So related services, this is for a child to help them to be able to function they, um, through their daily, um, daily, their day at school um, so they can do this better. These are provided at no cost to a parent. 
and that um, they're provided through the school. It, the IEP has to be very specific about what those related services how the student will benefit from the, from it through the special education services. Um, it could be school nurse services, social work, transportation, occupational therapy, physical therapy. It could be counseling. It could be, you know, transportation, like I mentioned. It's just, again, these are conversations that need to be held inside that case conference. So when we talk about those related services, we have, we are able to show that they're going to be a need for the student and how they would benefit from having these and how they would benefit from that special education arena. The do, they're documented in the IEP um, and they're not academic or course, that's the, the they're not gonna be uh, coursework or instruction. Um, they can be developed um, as a supportive service, you know, um, or even a corrective service. So it, it just depends again upon that individual child. That's why we have the individualized educational program. That's why we have this to come together so that um, we can have these conversations inside of that case conference committee on what that child needs because it is very individual. So least restrictive environment. Um, this is just a, um, it, to me it used to be a bigger conversation, least restrictive environment. Um, at least whenever I first started 18 years ago, it was like nobody really understood what least restrictive environment was or there was a confusion on it. It was just, you know, some very big words to put um, out there. But, you know, what we need to, to, to talk about here is, again, what's that least restrictive environment? And where is your child going to be served best in order for them to have that leveled playing field? And what day, to, what's their day going to be looking like? And again, this is an individualized educational program, but we want to make sure that we are having them to the maximum appropriate educated in that general education setting. Absolutely. There's modifications that can be done and made in the general education setting. They're done every day across the board. It doesn't matter, you know, there's things that can be done inside that classroom. Um, more than half the children with special needs in the United States um, did not receive appropriate educational services that gave them equal opportunity before special education laws came into effect. Um, one entirely from the public school system and many times families had to find alternative uh, systems for their children to be in and that was done at their own expense. So we know that having the laws put into place and being able to have our kids in the, in the school buildings, in the brick and mortar buildings, where everybody else is at, we want them to stay to the maximum extent appropriate, they will be educated in that general education setting. You know, and again, it's, it's one of those soapboxes that you can jump up on, but it's a law. Everybody is required to have this. They have written policies 
to make sure that our, that our kids are included and exposed to the many different opportunities, but it really means that students with disabilities should be educated with their typical peers. That's really the, I mean, it, it, it comes down to that the typical peers are in that general education classes, and most of the time they're the same, same age peers, and so that's where our kids need to be. Doesn't matter of what their disability is, doesn't matter what impedes their learning. We want to make sure that their education the maximum extent appropriate with their same age peers in that genetic setting. Any programs, accommodations, modifications, again, they can be made in that general education setting. All students should have the same opportunity, that equal opportunity to participate in those non-academics, those extracurricular activities as much as possible. And students with a variety of disabilities receive services in the same classrooms at the same time. Um, there's only really a few, a few reasons why a child should be educated outside of that general education setting. And that change of placement is one of those that it is a case conference committee decision. And we need to make those educational, um, we need to make sure that we're having those educational uh, questions, any of those educational decisions. All of that arena so that we can make sure that we are making the best informed decisions as possible. But again, that least restrictive environment is so students with disabilities should be educated with their typical peers in the gen ed class setting and in, with their same age peers as much as possible. And that is inclusion. So we know that that would be the child's least restrictive environment. Um, you hear a lot of push, a lot of, well, my schools, let me put it to you like that. A lot of my schools are doing what they call push-in services where the special education teacher is actually coming into the general education classrooms now. And, you know, the kids are all in there together. They might have to sit, go to the back of the room at the end to maybe get some additional help, maybe to get some additional re-instruction. It just depends upon what that looks like. So, I mean, it's, it's not unusual now for that to, there to be a, a um, push-in services for those kids. Continuum of services. The IEP has to document um, the case conference committee's decision for what is the least restrictive environment for the student. And so the placement and services we uh, look at can be very different for students. Um, it could be that you're, they're only required additional time for taking tests or may only need speech therapy once a week. So these students would spend most of their time in the gen ed classroom and their peers may not even know they have special education, um, they're a special education student. Other students may need more support. Um, they may spend all or part of their day in special education classroom. They may even need some homebound services. Schools are able to, to provide and meet a variety of students' needs. And they do have the, the IEP does give them that flexibility. Um, so you see on the slide, general education is 
absolutely that's the least restrictive environment and it would go from down from there so you would have that resource room and it, the resource room could be where they just go in and maybe take their test the resource room could be where they have to take room and get the instructions and then leave and go to the resource room for additional teaching um, a separate classroom could be you know um, that classroom where it's a self-contained classroom um, where they where they would spend most of their day it just depends upon again what the students needs are um, that separate non-residential school residential school or any of those homebound or those hospital settings no matter what they are in no matter where they are sitting they have a continuum of services now the schools are not required to provide all of the options but only to ensure that they do have some availability um, so what it really means is if the schools um, does not have the type of placement the case conference committee has determined that their student needs the school must send the student to appropriate placement at the school's cost so if you are singing a case conference and you know that they're asking for a residential facility and um, nobody has any you know the parents don't have the resources or the funds and the school doesn't have the resources and funds but if it's a case conference committee decision that that child goes there then they need to make that available to them so finalizing the iep so once the case conference committee has met and he's been developed it has to be finalized um, school has 10 business days to provide the parent with a copy of that proposed IEP and um, the parent needs to review it and give the consideration that it needs. Uh, but there are some differences between the first IEP and the initial IEP or in a revised IEP. So an initial IEP, if this is the first IEP the parent has to sign. If they have to give that written consent in order for services to start if you disagree with the what is written into that um, IEP then you really need to be saying you know I, we need to stop I need to reconvene so if there's a different different if I'm sorry if there's a disagreement they have to challenge that IEP they have to make sure that the school understands that they are not going to be signing it and they uh, need to challenge it. So whenever we have a revised IEP, this has been an IEP that's been in effect for, for a long time, um, or it was last year, now you're coming back for your annual, the parent has 10 instructional days. Instructional days, again, are those days that the school is open. I call it when kids have seat, butts in seats. And so if they're butts in a seat in school, that's an instructional day. So this, the parent has 10 days to either agree to it or challenge the what was the revisions that were in there. Um, if the parent is not in agreement, they need to let the school know that they're not in agreement and we need to be coming back to the table um, and working through those differences. If the school, if, if the school does not hear from the parent on the 11th day, they're going to go ahead and implement it because this, the parent does not have to sign the IEP. Most of my schools will have parents sign it, but they do not have to have that signature. Only time that they really need it is for that initial IEP 
um, and for them to do any sort of evaluation. A written opinion. Any case conference committee member can submit a written opinion about a proposed IEP. It has to be done within 10 business days and after the meeting. And this can be useful for a parent who may be in a sub substantial agreement with the proposed IEP, um, but doesn't want it, and, you know, to delay the implementation. Um, but they want to express their concerns about the issues in which they are in disagreement. So the best way to do it is for the uh, parent to document those concerns and to use that written notice that occurs during the conference to make sure that their concerns are clearly documented under the parent concerns within the IEP. You wanna make sure that as a parent, if you are sitting there in a case conference and you um, are, are having some concerns, you wanna make sure that that is documented at some place at some point. And so underneath the parents' concerns is an excellent place for that. I, I highly encourage you. Um, I couldn't believe the other day that I was at a case conference and what their concerns were, um, which really relatively surprised me. And the parent had a pretty good list of, of issues and concerns. Um, and if you are calling me to attend to a case conference with you, I usually bring a bullet pointed, um, well, our discussion has been what you are wanting to um, at least talk about and what you are concerned about. So anyway, anybody, again, anybody can do a written opinion. Um, it's a good way to document any of those concerns and it, but it's not a part of the IEP. It goes into the student's file. So implementing the IEP. So if this is again an initial IEP and you have given consent, you, you have to provide that written consent before the services can start. And it has to be, it has to be implemented no later than school, 10 school days after they receive the written parental consent. They need to be able to have time to get their um, ducks in a row as well and to make sure that everything's um, gonna run smoothly. A revised IEP uh, written consent, again, is not required. Um, it's just one of those things that I think schools do just really out of courtesy. But it will, be, it will be implemented on that 11th day after the parent receives the copy of the proposed um, IEP. Um, if the parent would come in and, and say, you know, I agree with it, go ahead, you know, before that 10 days was up, that would be fine, you know, that way the school would know they could go ahead and start and it would be done earlier. Um, or you need to let them know if you're gonna challenge the IEP and that you're not in agreement with um, some of the things that are in there. Now, when I say that, if you do challenge the IEP and you're requesting uh, mediation or a meeting, that method doesn't resolve the issues of the parent satisfaction. The school may implement the IEP on the 11th instructional day after the meeting or mediation, unless the parent requests a due process hearing. So on this, and on the student's third birthday, if the third birthday falls during the school year when the student is transitioning from first steps um, and in all other circumstances on the initiation day started in the IEP. So we have options there. Again, you don't wanna be sitting in a situation where you don't know um, 
you don't know what to do with your IEP. Maybe you, you just have some questions or con, you know, concerns or just need some things just kind of clear, cleared up for you. Make sure you let the school know since that can be done before that 11th day. So the complaint process. You can file a complaint with the Indiana Department of Ed. Um, there, is an, uh, there is a form online, it's iChamp. Um, you can um, go in there and download the form. Um, the issues you could file a complaint on and are items that are in writing, um, either an IDEA, Article 7, or the student's IEP. Um, you'll want to make sure that you do read over the IEP and you'll want to look to see, look at those regulations to see if you find it in writing. If the answer is yes, ask yourself, is the school doing what is written? If the answer is no, then you have the option of filing a complaint. When you file a complaint on an IEP, it's a matter of fact. So if we said that little Johnny was supposed to receive um, 20 minutes of speech therapy and he's not receiving any speech therapy, you know that's a matter of fact because it's not being done. Then you can file a complaint. Um, there's some, there's, there are some examples to file um, a complaint would be failure to conduct an evaluation within the required timeline for the IEP or failure to implement a service or services written in as the IEP was agreed upon. I will tell you that if I get a call from a parent, excuse me, that tells me that they don't feel like the school is following the IEP, um, I generally will say, you know, can we come back to the, go back to the case conference, see what we can find out and see if um, maybe it's just a matter of a misunderstanding before the parent does file the complaint. Um, because sometimes things, you know, everybody's human, guys. Sometimes things just happen. But you want to really try to keep that relationship intact as much as possible. Um, we all make mistakes. I'm not giving anybody any excuses. I'm just saying that, you know, we all do make mistakes and, you know, we're all human. So resolving those disagreements between the parents and the school. If the parent disagrees with the proposed IEP, um, they can, like I said, they can choose to use informal options to resolve the dispute um, by reconvening the case conference, or they may want to just meet with the public agency representative. Um, it just really depends upon what the parent feels, or they can even request a facilitated IEP. Um, unless a, a parent plans to move to a new school district or withdraw, withdraw their um, student, uh, or if the student's going to end up um, attending a private school, then there will be working relationships with the school. If um, you go the dispute resolution steps. Their informal options could might work best um, if you try to want to if you want to work out try and uh, preserve that relationship with the school. A facilitated IEP um, it involves the parents and the schools and the agreeing to where they request a facilitator to help bring some structure to that case conference committee. Um, it's not required through Article Seven, but the IDOE does offer an option for a facilitated case conference. Um, 
whenever you talk about um, any of those that so far of those resolving those disputes, when you talk about a complaint, when you file that complaint and it goes to the complaint officer, you know, um, you're filing, it could be a 50-50 shot here on whether or not you win. Um, but it's whatever you want to try and do, it's up to you. You're the one that has to make the decision. Um, it's just, like I said, it's just really, it's just up to you. Um, it's not something that I would, I would not want to um, influence a parent either way, okay? But whenever you do file a complaint, the uh, complaint officer is the one that eventually will make the decision for you. When you move to that facilitated IEP, you still have a part of that and you can still bring into the, um, into that facilitation your points, your viewpoints, and your reasoning behind the things that you don't agree with. Now, if you talk about mediation, um, and again, this the more formal way of um, 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 disputing any sort of complaints, um, it's uh, there's a both the school and the parent have to agree with it and they have to um, sign a piece of paper and then they send it to the Department of Ed. The Department of Ed then sends down a trained mediator. That person is not a stakeholder. It doesn't, you know, they're not there to make any decisions. At that point, as far as the parent, you still have, you know, some authority there because you're not having somebody else make decisions for you is what I'm really trying to get at. But um, it's an impartial person, like I said, that, you know, they just try to get you to see other people's sides of the conversation. Um, sometimes you're sequestered, sometimes you're not. It just really depends upon the situation. Um, but you're just really trying to get both sides to talk and agree on something. Now, if you want to go the due process route, um, if that's an administrative law proceeding, um, this is before an impartial independent hearing officer excuse me, the hearing officer will consider all the information presented to him or her at the hearing and they will be the one that will issue that uh, written decision. But prior to getting to that due process, you will have a resolution session and it's kind of just like, you know, very similar to mediation, um, but it does occur after you have filed for due process. And um, this is, I call it the last ditch effort to get the uh, issues resolved. Um, but uh, you have one more chance before you would go into that hearing. Um, this is, uh, it, it's just one more, one more way. And you don't want to bring, um, when you go into that resolution session, the school's not gonna have their attorney. There's, there's no reason for you to have your attorney there. You two are just going to try and get the conversation flowing again and talking and trying to come up to an agreement one more time. Um, you're, not re you're not required to be re represented by an attorney in a due process hearing, um, but it, it is very complex and it's very le legal of nature. Um, so an attorney who is competent in special education law 
um, could have, you know, very significant benefit. Again, you know, um, on a personal level, I'm pretty sure that if I would have had to go to due process with my own son, you know, and I feel like I'm pretty well versed in it, I would never go by myself. I would have taken somebody, I would have hired an attorney. But one of the last ways to resolve a, a dispute would be a civil suit. And it's a procedural safeguard. It's available only after the due process hearing has been held. And anybody that's in uh, any party disagreeing with the hearing officer's decision at a due process hearing can file for a judicial review in civil court. I have never, um, I mean, I've been involved in a couple of um, due processes, but I've never been involved in a civil suit. Um, so I wouldn't even begin to know what that would even look like. Your home file, and I know you've got you've listened to our webinars before i'm sure you've heard us talk about the home file i cannot i just cannot express enough to you how important it is to have this home file and how you really want to make sure that you are you know keeping it in chronological order keeping those evaluations those ieps all of those report cards um Anything that you really feel like you're going to be able, you're going to need, um, whether it be in a binder for the year and then, um, you know, uh, so you can just grab the binder if you had to reconvene the case conference. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm so sorry. Um, you'll want to keep all those medications if your child's taking uh, med medications or any of those notes. excuse me, that go between you and the school, any reports, any doctor or psychologist reports. It's just a way for you to be organized. Um, some people think that that three ring binder it is the best way to go, a folder, a portfolio, um, envelopes, you know, it really, really just depends upon you and how, what your organization um, style is. It's, you know, not across the board the same. Mine was a forge war filing cabinet. I really have to sit back and laugh about it now, but um, it was a very serious filing cabinet. Um, my biggest concern was to make sure that um, if my if something happened to me, my husband could reach in there and grab that that folder and open it up, and it would have the the school's information. It would have my son's teacher of record. It would have his IEP was in there. Um, and then everything that had happened that year would be in that folder there. And um, there was, you know, contact information in case something happened or if he needed to reconvene a case conference, if he needed somebody from in-source. I mean, so I kept it pretty well organized because, you know, yeah, that was, that's just me. So everybody's individual style is their own. Um, but it's just really important to have that home file to be able to have access to all of that information. So in summary, the IEP, this is a document that records what special education related services, accommodations or modifications um, that a child with a disability may have. Um, the parent and school are equal opportunity or excuse me, equal partners um, in the case conference committee and both share um, that decision-making authority. Um, remember that a, as a parent, um, you know what's in your best child's needs and strengths, and you know what's in their best interest. 
but your input is valuable and you're important to that case conference committee team. Um, the teacher record has very specific responsibilities to ensure um, that the appropriate staff have the necessary information so that they can um, provide those services to your child and from the IEP as written. And you know, parents, you really having some of those conversations with your child when they come home and let's say they come home and they had an F on a test. Well, tell me a little bit about the test. Tell me a little bit about what's going on. Did you go to the resource room to take your test? What was, you know, what does all that look like? There are ways that you can monitor all of that. Um, and to be sure that you understand what your uh, uh, rights are so that you can use any of those formal disputes if you need to. Um, not that I'm saying jump to the jump to mediation or due process or anything. Um, again, I will always ask you to go back to the case conference committee one time, but it doesn't hurt to know what your, what your parental rights are. So that does bring us to the end of the webinar for today. Real quickly, I would like to go over our parent support volunteer program. This is a way for you to um, help others out. It's a way for you to kind of grow your skills. Um, you can help Kathy and I um, assist at workshops and fairs, um, but part of this um, program, you'll gain those leadership skills, you'll have the ongoing training. Um, we have regular newsletters and webinars, um, and it's, again, a good way to build those uh, strengths as an advocate. Um, and it really does, it really does have a um, good impact on other families. If you have any questions, any concerns, please feel free to reach out to our in-source um, central office. They will be able to um, put you in touch with your area in-source person. You can always email at insource at insource.org. Always go onto our website, please. There's a plethora of information there. Like Kathy was saying earlier, there's information about extended school year. There's it's just a wealth of information, and I highly encourage you to um, go on there and um, see see what else we have there. Our webinars are archived there. We have podcasts. It's just a, a real good um, informational website. You can follow us on Facebook, and you can follow us on on Twitter. Um, Kathy, did I leave anything out? No, I don't think just that quick reminder, there will be a survey uh, following the webinar. Set question six will have a link that you can download your certificate of attendance. For those of you that are listening by telephone only, we do not know who you are and you can't get credit for attending unless you contact our central office at 800-332-4433 or email insource at insource.org by the end of uh, business day today. Um, 